had a couple of items on a honeydew list yesterday. One of those items was to trim a knockout rose bush. And, you know, roses are interesting flowers. Uh, they're beautiful. When they're in bloom, I don't know of any flower that's more beautiful than a rose. But when you get up close, they have thorns. And I'm telling you, it's not easy to trim a rose bush with thorns. My hands bear the scratches this morning of trimming a rose bush and carrying the, 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 the scraps off. I mean, it was not an easy job. When we see a rose bush, we see flowers. When you get up close, you see something else, don't you? We need to understand that God doesn't look at us like we look at a rose bush. God doesn't stand at a distance and just look at our outward appearance to see how rosy things look. God looks beyond our appearances to the very essence of our heart. And we need to understand that. If we're going to understand how God works in the world and how God works in our lives. And so turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16, as we continue this study through this wonderful book. 1 Samuel chapter 16, we'll begin reading in verse 1. I ask you this morning, if you're physically able, to please stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Good attendance for a rainy Sunday morning. Good job, good job. Good to see you here to worship the Lord. 1 Samuel 16, verse 1, the Bible says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. Let's pray together. Father, we pause this morning to call on your name. We pause because of our desperate need for you. We understand that all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. And so, Holy Spirit of God, we ask you to, to move in our lives in mighty ways. We ask you to take the Word of God and drive it home into our hearts, drive it home into our lives, that we may understand it, that we may apply it, that we may obey it. Lord, we'll thank you for that grace. Lord, we thank you for your presence here today. As I read this morning in Psalm 33, we are surrounded by your steadfast love. And we are grateful for that reality. Now, Lord, I pray that, that what we would do in these few moments studying your word would glorify your name. Establish my steps in your word, and we pray and ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. If I was to give you a, a broad outline of the book of 1 Samuel, I would give you this one. Part 1 is the story of Samuel. Chapters 1 through 7, we see how God 
raised up Samuel, removed wicked spiritual leadership, and placed Samuel in a role of leadership. Part 2 starts in chapter 8. It's where God named Saul as the first king of Israel. If you remember, the people of Israel wanted a king, just like all the other nations had a king. And even though this was not what was best for them, God gave them what they wanted. He named a king for them. And in chapters 9 through, or sorry, 8 through 15, we see the story of King Saul unfold. Well, uh, we know that things went bad for King Saul. We know that he made some foolish decisions based upon his self-dependence and his self-importance and his self-indulgence. So God chose to take the kingdom away from Saul and give it to someone else. And that's where we find ourselves here in chapter 16. We find ourselves in that moment when God is going to name Saul's successor, name and anoint the next king of Israel. Now, I've enjoyed the study thus far. It has been rich to just work through and study through these chapters and preach through these chapters in God's Word. God has done a, 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 a real work in my life through 1 Samuel. And it's been great, but listen to me. It's about to get real, real good. I mean, there are some, some powerful scriptures coming up, some familiar passages of scripture like David and Goliath coming up. It's going to be great to just let God speak to us from those passages because part three is the story of Saul and the new uh, anointed king. His name is David. And we'll see the interplay between Saul and David through the remainder of the book of 1 Samuel. Now, David is an important figure in biblical history. He's an important figure in the Old Testament. There are 66 chapters dedicated to the life of David. 66 chapters in the Old Testament. Not to mention, there are 59 mentions of David in the New Testament. And so he holds a role of great prominence in the Bible. And as we see the story unfold this morning, as we see God anointing and naming David as Saul's successor, the next king of Israel, we learn some very important principles. We're reminded of some important principles concerning how God works, how he works in the world, how he works in your life, how he works in my life, how he works in and through our church. We want to we mark well these truths and these principles so we can be in line with the will and the way of God. So I want to answer this question. How does God choose people for special assignments? How does God choose folks to do things of significance for his glory? How does God do that? How does God work? How does God move? Is there a pattern we can discern from Scripture? And the answer is yes, there is a pattern that we can discern from Scripture. And there are at least five answers to this question found in our chapter this morning. First of all, we learn or reminded of that God likes surprises. You'll never understand the will and the way of God until you understand that God is a God who likes surprises. Now look what happens in verse 2. Samuel said, after the Lord says, go to Jesse the Bethlehemite and, and find the king that I've named from his sons. Samuel said, how can I go when Saul hears of it? He will kill me. So we already see that Saul was fiercely jealous and would have been, um, would have been very curious as to why Samuel was leaving to go to Bethlehem. So he said, how can I go? And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. You shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall 
anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, Do you come in peace? Why is the prophet of God coming to our small town? He said, In peace, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they entered, he looked at Eliab. This is Jesse's oldest son. And he thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. And Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And here's the surprise. Look in verse 11. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all the children? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, and behold, he is tending the sheep. You can almost sense that that Jesse was taken aback by the question. Well, there's one more, the youngest. He's out with the sheep, but surely he's not going to be chosen for this position of importance. Here it is. Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. Surprise! You've you've made seven of your sons pass before me. The Lord has chosen none of them. Bring the shepherd boy. Bring the youngest son. Bring the baby of the family. I want to see him. This was no doubt a surprise to Jesse. No doubt it it was a surprise to Samuel himself. You see, God loves to raise up the weak and do the unexpected to confound the wisdom of the world. And, and, until you understand that, you won't understand the ways of God. God loves to raise up, raise up the weak and do the unexpected to confound the wisdom of this world. Hold your place, but turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, very important passage of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Look what Paul writes to the church in Corinth. And by the way, the church in Corinth was a church in a city that was filled with, with this idea that man was wise and, 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 and through the wisdom of man we could figure out what life was all about. And look what Paul writes to the church in verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, so that, look at verse 29, no man may boast before God. God loves to do the unexpected. God loves to use the weak to do great things, so that people in the ways of the world don't get the glory. You see, when God works in a way contrary to the way of the world, guess who gets the glory? He gets the glory. When you see someone weak being used in great ways, you don't give glory to the weak person, you give glory to the one using the weak person. So God loves to do that so that he gets the glory. God likes surprises. A few years ago, I 
planned a surprise party for my wife, Claire. It was a birthday party, and I did all the preparations and behind-the-scenes stuff so that she could arrive at the destination and be surprised when, when everybody comes out and, 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 and says that word, surprise. And I thought, why did I do that? Why do we plan surprise parties? Why do, we, why do we do that? Why do we like to do surprise parties? Because we like to see the look on people's faces, right? That, that moment of, okay, I didn't expect this, and here it is. We, we love to see the look on people's faces. And I, I just believe that God loves to look at the, the look on our faces when he does something unexpected, when he doesn't work the way we think he ought to work, when he uses weak and insignificant people to do great things. I think he likes to see us go, God likes surprises. And and can I just encourage you with this today? If you feel weak, if you feel insignificant, if you feel unimportant, if you feel like no one is concerned with you and, 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 and worried about your corner of life, you are a prime candidate for God to move in mighty ways through your life. A prime candidate. God loves to surprise and god may want to surprise a watching world or a watching family or a watching church or a watching workplace or a watching school by using you in a magnificent mighty way god likes surprises now here's the second principle we see as we answer the question how does god choose people for special assignments God looks at the heart, not at outward appearances. God looks at the heart, not at outward appearances. Now look what it says in, back in 1 Samuel, verse 6, uh, verse six of chapter 16. When they entered, he looked at Eliab. Samuel looked at Eliab, this was Jesse's oldest son, and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature. So apparently, Samuel saw Eliab walk in and thought, well, this is the guy. Tall, strong, handsome. I mean, he just looks kingly. This has got to be the guy. And the Lord says, don't look at appearance. Don't look at stature. I've already shown you, the Lord is reminding him, that that is not always a good indicator of, of godliness. Because remember, God chose Saul to be the first king. And in two places in the Bible, chapter 9, verse 2, and chapter 10, verse 23, we're told that Saul was head and shoulders above all the other men of Israel. He was tall and strong and looked kingly and dignified. And I believe God chose him for that purpose. I believe God chose Saul to show the nation of Israel that just because someone looks like a king does not make them a great king. There's got to be more substance in someone's life than just outer appearance. As Ralph Klein writes in his commentary on 1 Samuel, fitness for kingship is not necessarily indicated by stature or attractiveness. And so God urged Samuel not to look at a candidate's appearance. Look what he says there in verse 7. Do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looked at the outward appearance. But here it is. The Lord looks at the heart. We in our culture are enamored by outward appearances, aren't we? But God looks beyond the roses. 
He, he looks closer at our lives. He peers into the depths of our hearts. And that is a key principle from God's Word. Now, we don't need to... I don't need to convince you, do I, that we live in a superficial culture. I mean, it's just everywhere. I remember years ago, during one of the presidential debates between George W. Bush and John Kerry, after the debate was over, there were some pundits talking about the debate. And one of them said this. As a matter of fact, it struck me as so, um, so astounding, I wrote it down in, in my notes. One of the pundits said, Well, did you notice tonight that John Kerry had on a red tie? And that's a warmer color than the blue tie that George W. Bush had on. And I think that he came across warmer than George W. Bush. And I thought, you have got to be kidding me. No comment about the substance of what he said, the content of his character, the content of his ideology. It was all about, hey, he looked a little bit warmer, so he won this debate. And that's just one illustration of how superficial our culture can be. But let's not be so quick to point because the same thing happens in the church. Do you know the church can be superficial? Remember years ago, growing up in my home church, we were between pastors, and so uh, our church formed a pastor search committee. And they brought in a, a candidate to be the next pastor of our church. And you know what I remember hearing even as a child? And by the way, let me just say this parenthetically, parents, be careful what you say about your church around your children. They'll remember it. Amen? You need to love the church because it's the bride of Christ. And your, and, and your children should know that you love the church. So remember that, all right? But as I heard the scuttlebutt of what was revolving around this candidate for the next pastor of our church, I heard people talking about his appearance. He just looks pastoral. He's a handsome guy. And there was discussion about how pretty his wife was. She is beautiful. She was missed something some years ago in, in some pageant. And, and she was beautiful, and, and, and there was even some folks that said, I think she's too pretty to be a pastor's wife. Now, where is that in the Bible? But you know what that was? Superficiality on display. I don't remember any discussion about the content of their character, their prayer life, their heart for God. It was about how they look. We're all prone to this. We're all prone to buy into outward appearances. And the Lord says, listen, don't get caught up in outward appearances. I don't get caught up in outward appearances, the Lord says. I look at the heart. You see, God didn't choose David because of his outward appearance. He chose him because of the condition of his heart. That's why he chose David to be the next king. So that begs the question, what was it about David's heart that God saw? What did God see in his heart? Let me give you three things I believe David had in his heart that God saw. First of all, he had a heart for God. A heart for God. Turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 13. 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. This is when the Lord tells Saul the first time through Samuel that he's going to take the kingdom away from him. He says, but now your kingdom shall not endure the Lord has sought out for himself, watch this, a man after his own heart. He calls David here a man after God's own heart. What does it mean to be a, a man or a woman after God's own heart? Well, I believe it means that you care about what God cares about. 
what's important to him is important to you. It means that we are sensitive to his work in our lives and quick to respond when he addresses an, an issue in our lives. It means that, that God's agenda is our agenda. God's focus is our focus. God's priorities are our priorities. We have a heart for God. And David had a heart for God. And so the Lord looks beyond outward appearance, birth order, and he says, I want the guy who has a heart for God. Do you have a heart for God? Is God's focus your focus? Are the things of God utmost in your life? Is a, is a concern for God utmost in your affections? Do you have a heart for God? David did. And secondly, not only did he have a heart for God, he had a humble heart. A humble heart. Over in Psalm 78, verse 70, the psalmist writes, He, God, also chose David, his servant. Everybody say servant. His servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From the care of the ewes with suckling lambs, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. And so David was a servant. Before he was a king, he was a servant. He took care of sheep. He was, he was involved in the nitty-gritty, taking care of ewes and suckling lambs, and he was involved in the, the care and concern of a flock of sheep. Psalm 89, 20, the Lord says, I have found David my servant. Everybody say servant. My servant, with my holy oil, I have anointed him. The Lord calls David a servant. Not a CEO. A servant. He had a humble heart. And God saw that. He wanted a servant to lead his people. Not the man that was head and shoulders above everyone else. Not the man that appeared to have it all together. He wanted someone that knew how to serve. Someone that knew how to work on the backside of nowhere and take care of sheep. That's what he wanted. A servant. You see, humility gets God's attention. Being a humble servant of God gets his attention. So I don't believe that. Isaiah 66, verse 2, the Bible says that the Lord looks to the one who is humble and contrite of spirit, the one who trembles at his word. Humility gets God's attention. And listen, pride repulses God. Pride drives God away. The Bible says that God gives, gives grace to the humble, but he is opposed to the proud. So what does it mean to be a person for God's own heart? What does it mean to have a heart in love with Him? It means you're, you're willing to be a humble servant. It's not all about you. It's about what you're willing to do faithfully. Third, David had a heart of integrity. Heart of integrity. Psalm 78, verse 72. The Bible says, He shepherded them according to the integrity of His heart, and guided them with skillful hands, talking about David serving as a king. Now this is an interesting verse. The skilled hands speak of the things that people saw David do. Lead an army. Lead an administration of the kingdom. Things people saw. They saw David lead with skillful hands. But the integrity of the heart speaks of those things which God sees. You see, God looks beyond outward success and outward appearance. He looks at 
the condition of our hearts. And David had a heart of integrity. And God saw that. God said he's going to be the next king of Israel. I'm not caught up in outward appearances. I'm naming David, a man after my own heart. So how does God choose people for special assignments? He likes surprises. He looks at the heart, not at outward appearances. But third, God molds people in obscurity. This is how God works. God molds folks in obscurity. Now look back with me in chapter 16, verse 11. Samuel said to Jesse, are these all the children? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, and behold, he is what? What's he doing? Tending the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, send him, bring him here, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he was out tending the sheep. Now look in verse 14. The Spirit of the Lord, the scene shifts to Saul, and it says, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Now there's a lot to talk about there, and we'll get to more of that as we work our way through 1 Samuel, but just notice this evil spirit is terrorizing Saul. Saul's servant said to, said to him, Behold, now an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you. Let them seek a man who is a skillful player on the harp, and it shall come about when the evil spirit from God is on you, that he shall play the harp with his hand, and you will be well. So maybe some musical soothe you, Saul. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the young men said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, and a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is, what's it say there? With the flock. What did David do? He was a shepherd. Before he was a king, he was a shepherd boy, watching out over sheep. God made David, I believe, a man after his own heart while he was tending sheep. Because remember, over in chapter 13, he says, I found a man. I've sought out a man after my own heart. And when he said that, David was a shepherd. So during his days as a shepherd, that's when God did a work to make him a man after his own heart. David was molded by God as he lived a life of relative obscurity. See, as a shepherd, David would have spent a great deal of time alone. There was space in his life. Hear me on this. There was space in his life for God to work on him. And I believe one of the great problems in the modern-day church is our busyness. We're so busy, we live at such a frantic pace that there's no space in our lives for God to work. We don't give God time and space and solitude and quiet for Him to do what only He can do, and that is renovate our heart. And busyness crowds out God. And we're so overwhelmed by activity, there's no room for God, and we wonder why we are not changing. We wonder why we are not being molded into the image of Christ in a greater way. It's because we don't have space in our lives. David, by his occupation, had space. And God used that to mold him. Say, wait, is this just a, a principle that you see in David's life? Or is this a biblical principle you see in other places? Well, you see it all throughout the Bible. Think about Moses. Before God called Moses and said, I want you to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Before he called him, 
Moses was a shepherd in the wilderness for 40 years. 40 years of shepherding. 40 years of quiet. And I believe it was in those 40 years that God prepared him to lead Israel. What about Jeremiah? In Jeremiah, we see that he was from an insignificant town, from a very small tribe. And when God called him, the Bible says he was a youth. He was probably still dependent upon his parents. And yet God calls him to, to speak to kings. What about Amos? Amos was called by God to go from the southern kingdom to the northern kingdom and to preach God's message. The Bible says that Amos was a sheep herder from Tekoa. Tekoa was in the sticks. I mean, he was on the backside of nowhere. He was a sheep herder. He was a country boy. And God was preparing him to be a prophet speaking to power. What about Paul? After Paul became a follower of Jesus Christ, he spent just a little bit of time in Jerusalem preaching and doing some ministry. But then he tells us in Galatians that he went into the wilderness, listen, for three years, three years, where the Holy Spirit of God trained him to be a missionary and a, an apostle and a leader in the New Testament church. Three years he was there in that desert seminary learning from God before he would be used and thrust upon the scene, Saul had to be molded. Paul had to be molded by God. And God took him into a place of obscurity to do it. As a matter of fact, you'll have a hard time finding someone in the Bible that was used by God that did not, did not have a time of preparation and training. The way that God seems to work, He seems to mold people in obscurity and prepare them for what he has for their life. I came across this quote from Chuck Swindoll in his wonderful book on David. He writes, Those who first accept the silence of obscurity are best qualified to handle the applause of popularity. Let me say it again. Those who first accept the silence of obscurity are best qualified to handle the applause of popularity. If God were just to thrust us into a role of prominence without preparation, we could not handle it. Our pride would get the best of us. Our weakness would rule the day if we were not prepared. But God loves to prepare his servants on the backside of nowhere. Get them ready for what he has for their life. You may feel like you're living in obscurity. Guess what? That may be right where you need to be. As God molds you into who you need to be. This is a principle that we need to learn in the church. You know, I was called to preach at a at young age. And, and I was around other young preacher boys in seminary. And, and there's this passion to preach the word. And, and you think, okay, I'm, I'm 21, I'm 22. I'm, I'm ready to pastor Bellevue. Bring it on. Right? And the reality is, no, you're not. No, I'm not. No. you got to go through some obscurity first, right? you got to be trained and molded by God so you're ready for whatever he has. Wherever he places you, you're ready for that assignment. So we need to embrace obscurity. We need to embrace wilderness time. We need to, we need to build some space into our lives 
some quiet, some solitude, some time on our knees before the Lord where we are allowing God to work and mold and, 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 and make us into who we need to be. God molds people in obscurity. Number four, God equips after he chooses. God equips after he chooses. Look what it says back in 1 Samuel 16, verse 13. Actually, back up to verse 12. So he sent and brought him in. Jesse brought David in. Now he was ruddy with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of the brothers. I believe the oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit. It's an outward symbol that God is choosing someone for service. Kings and prophets were anointed in this day and time. He took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And, I love this, the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward, and Samuel arose and went to Ramah. So God chooses him. This is the man I want to be the next king. And after God anoints him, immediately the Spirit rushes upon him. Now here's the question. Why does the Spirit rush upon him? Because David would need some help. He would need some help to be the king of Israel. And, and guess what? Before he would even become the, the king of Israel, he was going to walk down some very difficult roads. We'll see some of that in the next few chapters. He was going to need God's help. He was going to need God's guidance, God's power, God's strength. And so after God calls him and anoints him, the Spirit comes upon him mightily to equip him. You see, the Spirit of God rushed upon David to help him in his new calling because God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. God's not looking for people that have it all together because, listen, none of us have it all together. If God was going to wait on us to get it all together, he would be waiting forever. Because I don't know about you, I'm not good at fixing up my own life. How about you? I'm not good at picking myself up by my bootstraps. It never works out too well for me. But when God calls you and gives you an assignment, he's going to equip you and give you what you need to fulfill the excitement at the assignment. He equips after he chooses. He gives you the tools you need after he chooses. And so don't wring your hands and say, wait, I don't have what it takes to do what God wants me to do. Of course you don't. That's the point. Don't you get it? I don't either. We don't have what it takes. But if God calls us to a task, he will give us what it takes by his spirit. We need to understand. You see it in the New Testament church. Book of Acts. Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. But don't do anything yet until the spirit comes upon you. So on the day of Pentecost, they're praying together. The spirit of God falls, equips them. And they go out and make a difference for Christ. God equips after he chooses. And here's a fifth principle. We'll close with this. How does God choose people for special assignments? God likes surprises. God looks at the heart, not at outward appearances. God molds people in obscurity. God equips after he chooses. But fifth and last, God orchestrates our lives for his glory. God orchestrates our lives for his glory. Now, fast forward with me to verse 20. It gets very interesting here. God chose David to be the next king. He'll be the next guy. And then Saul's having these problems with a, an, a, an evil spirit tormenting him. They say, you need a musician. We know one named David. They go and get David. Look at verse 20. 
Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread and a jug of wine and a young goat and sent them to Saul by David his son. Then David came to Saul and attended him, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David now stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. So it came about, whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul, David would take the harp and play it with his hand, and Saul would be refreshed and be well, and the evil spirit would depart from him. Now, do you see the irony here? God chooses David to be the next king of Israel, and the current king, Saul, chooses David to be his armor-bearer and his musician. And what's happening here? We see God behind the scenes orchestrating David's life for his glory. He takes him and puts him into king boot camp. What better way to learn to be a king than to be there right beside a king, right? To learn how to do some things and to learn how not to do some things. He's in royalty boot camp. God orchestrates, so he's right there with Saul, learning, being prepared to be the king. He's going to learn some very valuable lessons through his relationship with Saul. We will see all of that unfold. But God was preparing David to be the next king. That's what we see when we look up at his life closely. But listen to me. If we back up and we look at this story from about 30,000 feet, we see the bigger picture. You see, David's anointing and preparation was so much bigger than just David. What's happening here is bigger than just David being a king and being prepared. God is doing something huge here. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a promise to David. He says, David, through your descendants, I'm going to put on the throne a king who reigns forever. Through your lineage is going to come a great and mighty king who will always reign on the Davidic throne. See, one day another king, a descendant of David, would come out of Bethlehem, just like David did. Like David, he was anointed by God and empowered by the Spirit. Like David, he would rise from obscurity to occupy the focus of a nation. But unlike David, this king was without sin. This king was God on earth. This king would die on a bloody cross for the sins of the world. And unlike David, he would walk out of his grave defeating death itself. Then this king would be given a name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what God is doing here through David is he's, he's putting him into a position of kingship, but it's so much bigger than just David. He's establishing the throne that would culminate in the reign of King Jesus. You and I need to understand that God's assignments are always bigger than us. They are for the glory of Christ. So think about what God's doing in your life, but look at your life from 30,000 feet. Look at the big picture. How is God using you to glorify and magnify and exalt King Jesus? There's always a bigger purpose in play. Always. And until we get that, we're not ready for God to move in our lives. 
Because if God moves in our lives and we don't keep it the big picture in mind, it'll become all about us. Right? Just like it became all about Saul as the first king of Israel. So God loves to orchestrate our lives, put the puzzle pieces into place for the larger purpose of glorifying the name of Jesus. And I hope you understand that. So you say, Wade, how does the Lord work? We've seen it here in chapter 16. He doesn't, he doesn't get caught up in outer appearances. He looks beyond all of that. And he peers into the depths of our heart. The question is, as God gazes on your heart right now, What does he see? What does he see? 